Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, from a very peaceful, warm San Francisco. It's November the 11th, 2021. It's peaceful here, but we've done a lot of shows recently about war, about the unbearable nature of war. Earlier this week, we did a show with the uh, Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego, uh, his new book about how hellish war was in Iraq for uh, American servicemen like himself. Not just the war itself, but the after effect, the impact it's had mentally, psychologically, and physically on those lucky enough to survive. I've fortunately never been involved in a war, and Gallego's description of, of both in, on the show and in the book um, is, is, is really very chilling. Uh, not all books, though, about war are quite as dark and depressing. Um, it seems as if recently most American wars have been catastrophes of one sort or America. Americans have made a habit of losing wars in Vietnam, um, in Iraq and many other places, perhaps even Korea. The last great war was, of course, the Second World War. That was perhaps the only great war in American history. And we have a book about it today by Tom Clavin, Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival. It's a I don't know if it's a cheerful book, but it's a book with a degree of optimism, which you won't find in books about Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam or Korea. And uh, Tom Clavin, who's a best-selling author, he's written many books, um, is joining us from his home in Sag Harbor, New York today. Tom, um, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Were you... Determined to write a cheerful book, if one can indeed write a cheerful book about war and particularly American war with uh, lightning down? I did not set out that way. Uh, and, and, uh, but as I was working on it, and it was a, an almost a six-year process, uh, this is not, certainly not something that was tossed off, uh, I a project that I initially thought was going to be rather grim, almost like unrelentingly grim, uh, did become, I don't know if I'd use the word cheerful, maybe uplifting. Is something yeah, I, 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 I apologize for that word. I, I don't think it's a cheerful book. No book about war is cheerful, particularly the narrative in the book. But it is uplifting. The central character, this is a, a nonfiction book. It's your recreation of a remarkable story. is about uh, a man called... Joe Moser. Um, tell me about Joe and, and, and what attracted you to Joe to uh, dedicate six years of your life to writing Lightning Down about his experience in the Second World War. Well, when I first found out about Joe, unfortunately, uh, it was because I read his obituary. And this would have been in December 2015 when he was 94 years old and died uh, at home in his community up in uh, Ferndale, a uh, uh, Bellingham area in the state of Washington. And something jumped out at me. I, I just was glancing through his obituary just because I'm a curious person. Hadn't been looking for it. I just I was looking for something else. And it mentioned that he was one of 168 pilots who had been incarcerated, secretly incarcerated at Buchenwald. And that intrigued me 
the, the largest story intrigued me. I wanted to find out about the largest story about what was it about these uh, Allied pilots? Why were they sent to Buchenwald? I mean, as far as all of us know, uh, if you're captured and, um, you know, unless you're a spy, I guess, when you could be executed right away. But if you're captured, uh, you get sent to a POW camp. Why was it different for these men? So I started pursuing that story, but also needed to find out more about Joe Moser because I realized soon on that uh, he was he was could could be my my guide into the story, my eyes and ears as to what the events that are transpiring. What I found out about Joe is that he was a farm, had a love of planes, which sounds kind of contradictory because he, he wasn't doing much flying when he was out in the farm fields. Uh, but when uh, Pearl Harbor happened and he enlisted, he really wanted to enlist in the army with the hope that he could become a pilot, which he did become a uh, P-38 Lightning pilot. And it was on uh, uh, his squadron, which the 429th squadron was sent overseas. And it was in the summer of 1944 that he was on his 44th mission. And I should point out that when he was on his 44th mission, Joe was all of 22 years old. And uh, yeah, was tell me... Um... Tell me a little bit more about Joe. Reading the book, Tom, he's out of central casting. The Midwestern farm boy, completely unworldly, uh, through events completely uncontrollable, at least for him, thrust onto the global stage. Was he? Did he have political literacy? What was his opinion, for example, of, of fascism? Fascism, you know, he, I think like many young men at the time, he had uh, was black or white. Fascism was bad. Hitler was evil. Nazism was evil. I mean, he thought that way right away before he even enlisted, certainly after he enlisted. It was even more apparent to him when he underwent his experiences in the, you know, being part of the worst the Nazis could dish out in the, in the concentration camps. Um but uh, but I, one reason I did, again, like Joe is my main character and my conduit into the story is that he was kind of innocent. He was kind of uh, idealistic. Uh, he was um, uh, he reminded me and his story reminded me of the many of the movies that were made in the 1940s and 50s about World War II. We had these uh, these rather naive and young and, and eager uh, boys becoming men through basic training and, and battle. Was there a dark side to, to Moser, Tom? Did you find out, you know, many of the more, shall we say, critical narratives now about Second World War and that period certainly focus on racism um, and, of course, sexism and the fact it was just young white men fighting this war. Uh, did you discover anything about Moser that you found disconcerting, disappointing? Or was he really centrally cast as the, the 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 paradigm of the greatest generation i think there was a lot of central casting aspect to him now again i never met him uh yeah, I, no, I, I know that early on i was in touch with his he he uh, when he passed away he left behind five children and uh, one of whom has since passed away but uh so through his children i, I tried to learn as much as i could about him so I wouldn't say he had a dark side in the sense that there were any anybody who said uh, Joe Moser, you know, he's really got this secret life and and or he's really not a nice guy at all. He was known in his later years or in his years after the war as the friendly oil burner repairman and always gave everybody a handshake. And when they would ask him how he was doing, he would say real good with that emphasis on the real. So uh, the dark side, if, if you would call us a dark side, is that uh, and this is talked about in the book, 
is that for decades after he returned home, he had nightmares uh, about his experiences because they were so awful mm. and he couldn't talk about them. It's interesting that in that sense, Lightning Down and um, uh, Ruben Gallego's new book on uh, the experience of being in Lima Company in Iraq aren't that different uh, with those kind of nightmares. I guess there were no technical medical terms to describe what Joe went through after the, first, after the Second World War. Today, of course, uh, we have those terms. Well, in, in the Second World War, they were called battle fatigue, shell shock. I mean, they were using some of the same terms. Yeah, it people. wasn't PSTD, right? No, not at all. Well, it was a double whammy for Joe Moser because he was uh, uh, typical of many of his generation, uh, which is often called now the greatest generation because of Tom Brokaw's book, uh, who, when they got back from their service, they're, they're, they were eager to get on with it, you know, find a job, find a wife, have a family, uh, uh, do your bit, look forward to what's coming, you know, down the road. That was one thing that Joe sort of embraced. But the second uh, uh, issue for Joe is that he was, um, uh, nobody believed him when he said that he had been incarcerated and survived Buchenwald. In fact, one senior uh, army officer said to him, you know, you're crazy. There simply were no Americans in Buchenwald. That never happened. So Joe, uh, after first trying to explain to people, this this was my experience and I wasn't the only one, uh, he just shut up. He, he refused to talk about it. He, didn't even t- he was married to his wife for decades before he told her. Uh, so What is it about that is- generation, Tom, that you hear many stories like this, that they they refuse to talk about their experiences in the First or the Second World War? Is it shame? Is it a fear of appearing uh, gruesome? Is it the fact that they simply didn't want to talk about what they went through because it was too unbearable? You know, I wish I could say that there's one central reason that, you know, one size fits all, but I think part of it was that they sometimes experienced things that they just did not have words for. Uh, now, some people did. Some people came back from the war and wrote about their experiences in some of the you know, more well-known books uh, after World War, that came out after World War II. But many of them could not adequately articulate, describe what they had gone through. Uh, I think also that some of them felt that if they opened themselves up like that, they might fracture in a sense. You know, they might, they, they might have trouble, more trouble mentally if they allowed themselves to be kind of sensitive or, or have a better connection to, to what their feelings were. So I think those, I think another, some of it might have been the sexism of the time. And that is when you found somebody that you wanted to marry or were dating or whatever the case may be, uh, you became very vulnerable if you started to talk about your experiences. And also you might've been worried about, I can't talk about that with this woman. She'll never want to date, go out with me again. It's, it's, it's too gruesome to talk to a woman about this. So I think sexism was more, and I, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just need to be at, at what was happening at the time was a, a factor. It's funny that you bring up sexism and women. Um, a few months ago, we had Judy Battalion on the show. Uh, she has a best-selling book out, The Light of Day, about female resistance to mm-hmm. the Nazis, heroic females. Uh, I can't remember in the book, are, are there any examples of, uh, at least in, in Joe Moser's story of, of women fighting fascism? Is it all men? Well, there are a couple of stories. Uh, for example, when Joe was first captured, uh, he uh, was brought to a prison outside of Paris, which had just 
uh, executed two uh, women who would work with the resistance uh, to, against the Nazis and it helped Jews to escape. So I tell a little bit about their stories. There's also a story that's almost kind of amusing, but when, when the train leaves Paris and it's eventually five days later gonna end up at Buchenwald with all these, not only Joe Moser and the pilots on there, but French resistance fighters and gypsies and other undesirables. Uh, one of the, the wife of one of the resistance fighters gets on her bicycle and she follows this train mile after mile after mile after mile because she wants to you know, get a message to her husband who's gonna in turn give her a message back, which she does. She does accomplish this mission. And then she has to get back on a bicycle and, and mile after mile pedal back to, to uh, Paris. It's kind of an amusing story, but it's also rather serious because, of course, this train is on its way to a concentration camp. Tom, where did Joe Moses' bravery, physical bravery, come from? And it's very unusual, at least in the way you portray in the book. Here was a man who, who didn't seem to be fearful, an incredibly brave man. He didn't learn this. You can't learn that kind of thing, can you? I don't think so. I mean, maybe it's possible that suppose you had a father who was uh, had done brave acts and you wanted to emulate that. In the case of Joe Moser, Joe was an adolescent when his father, his former father died. But I think that was part of what forged Joe Moser's heroism and bravery is that he had to take over the farm when he was something like 12 years old. Uh, he, he still went to high school. He still excelled at high school. There was a lot of resilience that Joe displayed taking care of his widowed mother and younger siblings before he even entered the army. So I think that doesn't guarantee resilience in a military situation by any means. But but Joe had had formed some habits about having to dig deep within himself to overcome challenges. Now, the challenges he was presented with uh, as a fighter pilot and as a as a captive in a, in a Nazi concentration camp were larger than anybody could have expected in, in their lifetime, certainly any, any young American farm boy could have expected. But I think that he tapped into that resilience that he'd had to display before. Joe um, is known, I, I don't suppose many people know this book, but he wrote uh, his own autobiography, or at least he had a, a co-author to write it, a fighter pilot in Vulcan Ward, the Joe Moser story that came out um, a few years before he died. What what do you think uh, your book, Lightning Down, adds to Joe Moses' own story of, of this remarkable, I wouldn't say it's a remarkable life, a remarkable five years or three years in his life? Well, I can tell you that when I when I drafted the manuscript, and, and a lot of writers might not do this, but I sent it to uh, one of Joe's daughters, and I said, would you read it? And let me know if there's anything in here that's either wildly inaccurate or or would be embarrassing to to your father or, or the family that he just wouldn't want to be out of print. And when she got she got back to me, she said, "You know a lot more about my father than I do." And so what my which which means I achieved a big goal of mine, which was to take the Joe Moses story that he uh, outlines uh, to some extent in his own book that was sort of privately published years earlier, but. He, there's the bigger story, the more of the context of Allied pilots uh, being illegally sent to Buchenwald, how they all survived together, how they, not they, excuse me, they didn't all survive, but most of them survived together. And then even their experiences after Buchenwald, that, that was, Buchenwald was one of several uh, deadly challenges that these Allied pilots, so we get to know some of the Allied pilots better because Joe is understandably mostly focused on his own perceptions and experiences, but there were other pilots who were in there too. And there's the larger story about what was happening around them in the, the World War II during their incarceration 
first in Buchenwald, and then some of the most awful PLW camps imaginable. We're going to take a short break, um, Tom, and then I want to come back and talk about Buchenwald, which really is the most memorable part, unfortunately, in the Joe Moser story. So, so stay with us, and we'll be back in a minute. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with the best-selling writer, Tom Clavin, the author of this remarkable new book, Lightning Down, uh, the story uh, uh, of a World War II, it's a World War II story of survival about a man called Joe Moser. Um, so, uh, Tom, he was shot down um, and he went into a, a prisoner of war camp and then he was sent to the notorious concentration camp Buchenwald. How did that happen? Why did it happen? Well, the Germans were in middle of 1944. There had been a successful invasion uh, on D-Day. Uh, on other fronts, you know, the Russians were, were getting closer and closer, uh, one victory after another for them. And, and, and the war was turning badly for the Germans. And some of one result of that is some desperate measures they took. And one of those was they declared that any pilots who were shot down uh, in occupied territory and uh, were helped in any way by French resistance fighters, or even just French civilians, farmers, whatever, they were now being considered terror flyers or terror fliegers. And that was okay to not put them on any kind of trial, to not give them protection of Geneva Convention. They could be sent, first of all, to a prison outside of Paris. And then when that had to be evacuated because the Allies were getting closer, it was determined they could go to Buchenwald. They did not have the uh, ability uh, to, to go to a POW camp. The Germans decided, okay, they're going to go to Buchenwald to die. And so that's 
you know, specifically how Joe and those pilots ended up there was it was kind of like their bad luck, actually, if they had been shot down the year earlier. Right, the president uh, mildly come to uh, to end up in in Buchenwald uh, uh, is uh, is is more than bad luck. Here we have some images for people watching of Buchenwald. It wasn't um, like Auschwitz, was it? It was more it, many many thousands of people died in Buchenwald, but it wasn't. Um, a factory of death like some of the other concentration camps. Is that fair? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the Germans had actually different categories of concentration camps. You know, we, we many people may think, well, the concentration camp was a concentration camp. But Auschwitz was, was uh, you know, categorized as a death camp. I mean, its main reason for existence was to kill as many Jews and others as possible. It should be pointed out that Six million Jews were killed during the war, but 11 million died in, in overall in the Nazi camps. Um, so, uh, so Buchenwald was was the largest of the concentration camps, which is probably another reason why the pilots were sent there. But yes, uh, it was it, an it was irony, and, and 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 with that sort of typically uh, sort of uh, dark irony, um, uh, it was situated uh, in in. Goethe country in Germany. Yes, it was. I mean, the surroundings were beautiful. Uh, it was probably for many of the German officers who were there uh, a, a a good posting. You could bring your family, your, your, your entire families of guards and officers lived on the Buchenwald compound in the compound. Um, but Buchenwald was a labor camp, which meant that its primary purpose was to provide free labor in the factories that were adjacent to it, building roads nearby, whatever was needed. However, so, I mean, essentially it was, if there's such a thing as this, it's sub-slave labor camp. I mean, yes, you yes. were worked to death. Exactly. That's why there were still thousands upon thousands of people who died there, because it was a combination of being worked to death and also severe malnutrition, exposure, uh, disease, uh, all you know, everything combined that there were Every day, dozens of people died and were carted off to the crematorium. So this Midwestern boy, without any experience, flying his plane, gets shot down over France, ends up in Buchenwald. What did he make of it? Did he have the, um, the moral dictionary to make sense of such profound evil, perhaps the most profound evil in human history? Joe I, don't, I don't think he did. And I think one of the reasons why his... Uh, memoir, uh, he sort of dictated it to a man named Gerald Barron, a good friend of his, uh, towards in, when he was well into his 80s. I think one reason why that's so effective is because Joe did not have the ability to step back and say, oh, here's what my thoughts were. Here's how I'm rationalizing this. Here's how I'm conceptualizing this. No, he was a, a, still a very, in, he had been in 44 combat missions. He was still a very innocent man, only 22 years old. And he, in order to try and cope with his surroundings, he became a very good observer. So he he would he would assimilate details. He would absorb like a sponge what was going on around him, and probably not to, didn't want to think about it too deeply because if you do, I mean, just imagine being in a, in a in a concentration camp and thinking about how bad your situation is and dwelling on that. In addition to your physical challenges, mentally you're going to go downhill fast. Were the pilots, the American pilots who ended up in Buchenwald, were they treated differently from the other slave laborers? The only way they were is that, uh, you know, these 168 Allied pilots, when they got to Buchenwald, they were told that they were going to, like everybody else, be put to work. 
And uh, Colonel Philip Lamison, who was the New Zealand, who's the senior officer of those pilots, he was from New Zealand. Uh, he told the Nazi officers, we're, we're not doing that. That's not what we do. We're captured flyers. We should be in a POW camp, not here. And so because of Lamison, uh, you know, he was beaten. He was he was threatened with death, dogs attacking him. Uh, any moment a trigger could have been pulled to end his life. However, he stood up to the Nazis. So they were not treated differently as far as the awful, disgusting food and the, the you know, the uh, contracting diseases and everything else was concerned. But they were not put to work in the factories where most of the, many of the uh, thousands of other Buchenwald prisoners were, were working. And um, the story doesn't end in Buchenwald. I'm not sure how much you want to reveal. Uh, your, your book reads in many ways like a novel, although it's nonfiction, uh, lightning down. Um, what happened after Buchenwald? He, he didn't. The, 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 the story doesn't end there, does it, of, of Joe Mosin? No, I'm glad you mentioned that because that could be a, a common perception among readers that, okay, uh, I mean, obviously he survived Buchenwald. I wouldn't be reading his obituary at age 94. Uh, he survived Buchenwald, end of the story, but it's not. Uh, they're transferred to another camp, then a camp after that, and that camp has to be abandoned. And and there's the... Uh, and, the and, he, and, he, and then sort of, again, in symbolic terms, he goes east into the yeah. heart of darkness in a, in a, in a Conrad-style uh, journey. Uh, so he goes to a place that's even worse than Buchenwald. Why was it worse, Tom? Well, it was the last few months of the war. And so the German uh, camps, even the POW camps, were running out of food. Uh, yes, there were Red Cross packages, but the guards would, would take many of those packages for themselves. And it was a combination of, again, they faced malnutrition. I mean, Joe was down to 105 pounds at one point. Now, he wasn't a big, robust 220-pound man to begin with, but still, if you're a grown adult and you're 105 pounds, you're near death. And that's what Joe experienced. And then on top of everything else, as terrible as the camps were, they had to, as, as the Russians and allies were approaching from two directions, the Germans moved them to yet another camp at the end of January in one of the worst winters of the 20th century. Is there a good German in the narrative, Tom? There is. Uh, one of the um, most dramatic parts, I think, of Lightning Down is that when the Allied pilots, all of them have not conveniently died. Hitler orders their execution. And they come within a whisker being executed. And the reason why they did So this, this got in front of Hitler. Why, why did this get in front of Hitler with this terrible war going on? Why would he care about 160 pilots? Well, I think belatedly, uh, the German government realized that they had committed a terrible war crime. And it was only going to get worse if these pilots... Well, but to put it, I mean, they'd killed 6 million Jews. I mean, when you talk about putting... 160 American airmen in, in Buchenwald, that doesn't really compare, does it? Well, you know, I think what they were worried about, understandably, which they should have thought of ahead of time, is that if it's discovered how badly, and badly is a light term, badly they treated these pilots, that what's to prevent their imprisoned pilots from being terribly abused or even killed also? So it was decided, and I'm not justifying some of the decisions that the Nazis made, but uh, it was decided to to execute them and throw them in the ovens and get rid of any evidence that they ever existed or certainly ever existed in Buchenwald. And it was only the, the last minute intervention by a German Luftwaffe pilot, a high ranking German ace. I mean, he was a, he was a hero of the fatherland. Uh, this intervention who thought it was appalling that pilots were being treated this way. There's supposed to be a code of honor uh, that he was a, a, able to get the ex, help them escape execution. But as you said before, it was only the big 
part of the longer journey that they were about to embark upon. There are lots of um, lessons I think we can learn from this. Certainly the heroism of, of Joe Moser and the fact that he does epitomize the greatest generation. One of the things I learned, I think, from it, especially in the context of Ruben Gallego's book, is the importance of national service, of the fact that everyone needs to fight in a nation's wars. You can't just have poor people, people from minorities fighting in the war. Do you agree? I, I do agree. I mean, we certainly have I've learned a lot more in the recent decades about what happened in Vietnam, uh, the, the uh, unusually high ratio of, of black to white soldiers, and it, partly because they were drafted and had no options, many of them. They didn't get the college deferment. They didn't have some of these other deferments that were available or the influence to stay out of service. And so I think I think I, I, I would agree with national service as a broad term. It doesn't necessarily have to be military. There'll never be another war like this. There'll never be another uh, war against pure evil uh, where a man like a, an innocent like Joe Moser ends up in Buchenwald, Thomas. Do you think that's fair? And in a sense... Um, this is a war almost invented for nonfiction narrative writers like yourself. Well, I think a big part of the reason is that you could go up against and fight uh, with all your power against evil. And we know now, of course, they the evil was defeated in World War II. Uh, now, of course, with any number of countries having uh, nuclear weapons, uh, if there was actually a massive uh, effort uh, to fight evil, it might involve the buttons being pressed that wipes us all out. So I think what you said is true. There, there will never be something on the scale of, of, of uh, World War II. If there is a World War III, it's probably going to be over in a half hour. Well, if it's over in half an hour, we won't have time to read Lightning Down, uh, Tom Clavin's new book, A World War II Story of Survival. Many of your books have become bestsellers, Tom. I think this one will too. It's, 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 um, it's a must-read, very coherent, beautifully written a lot of energy and excitement in the book. Congratulations. What else should people be reading in these strange times where we're still not quite sure whether we can go out or not? Well, I this is maybe a usual suggestion, but I, I'm a big fan of the Foo Fighters. <laughs> and Dave Grohl, their head, their head guy, who began with Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, is just out with a fascinating uh, memoir called The Storyteller about his years in rock and roll. And he's He's a tremendous performer, but who knew he was such a good writer about his adventures in the world of entertainment? So I would suggest uh, The Storyteller by Dave Grohl. Well, from Buchenwald to the Foo Fighters, I don't think even even uh, even uh, Joe Moser didn't take that kind of journey. Tom Clavin, thank you so much for uh, such an interesting interview. And congratulations again on, on your new book, Lightning Down. A World War II Story of Survival. It's just out, and I strongly encourage anyone who's interested in World War II stories to pick it up. So congratulations, Tom. Uh, and, uh, and I look forward to uh, talking to you when your next bestseller comes out. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. 
or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.